I want to create addicts of skill acquisition. That that is one of my main goals. And, and the, to do mm-hmm. that, you really need to create an environment around that. And again, it's not eliminating anything, but it's like playing around with these things and understanding what, what that athlete needs and what they've already been exposed to and what they're bad at, and then allowing them to have an environment in which they can go explore things they're bad at. That was Austin Yoakum, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. If you're a coach tired of using Excel or clunky software for your athletes, you'll definitely be interested in today's sponsor, Strength Coach Pro. Strength Coach Pro is a digital training platform designed to help strength coaches create, distribute, and track programs for their clients. It's easy to tell that Strength Coach Pro was created by a coach for coaches. The versatile program builder makes it easy to build out detailed training programs, distribute them to athletes, and track the progress, all without spreadsheets or data entry. One of the best things about Strength Coach Pro is that there are no recurring fees. You pay one fee and you get lifetime access to the program. And to check out what Strength Coach Pro can do for you, head to strengthcoachpro.com. That's strengthcoachpro.com. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. It's awesome to have you here, and I'm excited to welcome back to the show guest Austin Yokum. Austin is the owner of Yokum Strength. He has a brilliant mind for athletic movement, problem solving, and the things it takes people to level themselves up in the athletic space. Austin himself has a diverse athletic background. He was an All-American lineman, and he was the MEAC indoor weight throw champion, And these days, you can regularly see him pushing his movement capabilities to new levels in arenas such as rock climbing, dunking, slow pitch softball, and many other things. When you watch Austin's videos of training and performance, you can see that he really prioritizes things that drive the athletic problem solving and skill building engine. And on the show today, he'll be getting into the breakdown of finding low hanging fruits in athletic performance and athletes. He'll talk about his philosophy in creating skill-building addicts. We'll also get into self-learning concepts and avoiding overcoaching, and Austin will get into the nuts and bolts of his weekly training setup, so how he approaches movement, game speed, and games throughout the weekly process, and we finish the show out with a lightning round. I always enjoy talking with Austin. Again, he has such a brilliant mind for athletic movement, skill-building, everything that makes one level up in that process of athleticism, and I'm excited to get this show to you guys. So let's get to it, uh, episode 348 with Austin Yoakum. So Austin, you've said that you used to do all the the very prototypical stuff, like all the A-skips, all the typical more robotic type warm-ups, like the monster band walks and go to this station, that station, bracing, anti-whatever drills. Uh, What was the process for you of unraveling that? Like, What were some key points throughout your athletic and coaching career where you started to shift into where you are now yeah yeah so we like we like you said we did it all i remember we used to like we used to do wedding warm-ups on upper body days and lower body days we'd do three-way monster band walks we do a whole dynamic and static warm-up in the first year when i was at the college that i was working at it, it worked because mm-hmm. i was the new coach so i was the new coach coming in so the new stimulus was the new coach the new mm-hmm. person coming in the new person yelling and as soon as that was gone, the, the, the athletes stopped caring. Like they, they did the, the stimulus with the new stimulus, the new thing they had to pay attention to, the new challenge that they had, it was gone. So they just sat there with like what makes them athletes is destroying movement challenges and, and loving movement mm-hmm. challenges and solving movement challenges. 
And then movement challenge of showing the person, the new person in front of me that I can move was completely gone. And there was no new movement challenge. They all know they can A skip. Everybody can A skip. And that, that was the other thing. It's like the worst athletes in the room could A skip mm-hmm. and the best athletes in the room could A skip. The worst athletes in the room could monster band walk and the best athletes. And that, that was such an ego hit for us, for me as a coach too. It's like, oh, this is awesome. Like I got the worst athlete in the room to do this. And he was still the worst athlete in the room. It wasn't like I made him a better athlete. And that was like, and it, then that's where it's funny because you look at it now as a coach and you're like, that's so obvious. Like it, it seems so obvious. It's like once you're able to take a step out of the box, it's so obvious just looking almost in a 3D perspective, like how obvious that is. It's like the worst athlete in the room can do it. And he's still the worst athlete in the room. So like, like <laughs> what benefit did that have? They're not, they're not solving any movement problems. They're not doing any, like they're not, they're not getting better. It's just, it's just better for me. I feel better about myself. And it, it all looks pretty. And that that's one thing I say a lot. Like, if it looks pretty, it's for you. It's not for them. If it looks pretty and it gets prettier, it's absolutely mm-hmm. for you as a coach. And it's for you as a coach to show the admin. And having these coaches on, like uh, Michael's Wayful and going to a lot of movement meetups with um, uh, movement, the Movement Miyagi and uh, my the other coach that I worked with at uh, St. Thomas, Stu Bourne, he, ta- he brought me to all these things. And he would challenge a lot of stuff. And he was really, really good about challenging me because he would challenge in a way of like, you're sure? Like I would mm-hmm. do, I would talk about like these booty band things preventing ACLs because your, your knee doesn't go into valgus. And like, th- and this is why I feel like pretty able to talk about a lot of these things. Cause I was all in it. Like I was mm-hmm. totally in it. I would tell him these things and he'd be like, you're sure. And he would just point to a video, like a video of like KD's knees completely going like touching when they're, he's shooting. It's like, well, that didn't happen there. So like, what's there? And I would just be like, well, he could be better. And like, mm-hmm. and like in that moment, I'd be like, what are you, what are you saying? Like, you're telling me the best bat, one of the best basketball players in the world could be better. You could make him better. Like you can't even make the worst athlete in the room better, you, you know? So it, it was like a lot of the paradox, like just taking a step out and listening to a lot of smart coaches tell me you're sure and ask me you're sure. And, and just look at this. And, and that, that was one of the really cool things is like, just look at this. And, and once you start to see movement and just take a step out and just slowly be like, oh, and then you try these things yourself. You stop doing A skips mm-hmm. for a little bit and, and you get it faster. It's like, okay, well, A skips weren't getting me faster. Uh, you stop doing A skips and you start racing people. And the A skips, that was the other thing. Like the A skips would completely go out the window, but you'd run faster. It's like, okay, like may- maybe it's not that important. I, I'm when I, I talk about jumping all the time, for the longest time, I was told like knees out when I squat, knees out everything. And I used to have this like, when I, back as a kid, I never had any back pain. I would like bounce my knees out at the mm-hmm. bottom of a squat and I would jump and I would just have pretty like, that internal, the external rotation, it looked, it was nice and rhythmic. I love squatting. And then for the longest time in college, I was like, I was told knees out. I was, everybody put the booty bands around my knees and drive out. And instantly, like the squat mm-hmm. felt so rigid and my back just felt like crap. And I heard me needed a disc. Everything just felt slow. And like, as I started to increase my vert, that the internal, the external rotation, the external, the internal rotation started to come back and everything just started to feel better. I'm like, oh, like that's what all the great athletes do. Like, just, just watching movement through that way. And I just experiencing it myself and listening to a lot of really good coaches talk about it and just being able to take a step out and be like, this is what's actually happening. And this is, this is not what I'm just trying to pretend and like creating a reality that's not really there in front of me, the paradox that's there. Yeah. I think a lot of that is through yeah, asking questions and being curious. I know people like uh, Leonardo da Vinci, I think he had like hundreds and hundreds or maybe thousands of pages of questions. And great minds throughout history, like Albert Einstein, have said, you've just given a lot of credence to that process of asking a question and looking like looking at KD and saying, not just saying, oh, well, his knees shouldn't be in, but 
asking, well, why are his knees going in on that shot? And really digging into that and not letting it go, you know? And I, I just think that, yeah, that and then doing it yourself and, and feeling it in your own body and feeling that change, it's, it's, it's a big one. So, yeah, it's, uh, you know, I know you were saying too, I, we were talking about this a little bit before the show, and maybe this goes hand in hand with it, is how your own practice, and you had mentioned like kind of going to doing things the way that they, the textbook way, like, like knees out on the squat, things like that. But you mentioned that as you, the more you've been connected with being an athlete yourself, like going through athletic things yourself, that that has had an impact on your coaching. So I, I'm curious for you to go into that concept a little bit. Yeah. And that's, that's something I, I really think about a lot too. It's like the coaches that are saying a lot of these things is like, when was the last time you went and did something, you know? And, and it's so obvious that you, you haven't done it because of the things that you're arguing about. It's like when you step up to the plate, like playing slow pitch softball, as simple of a sport as it is, I would sit there and I would miss hit a ball. And I'm like, well, I just had, I would have a terrible game. I would have a terrible game. I'd like get out three times at slow pitch softball in these tournaments. And I would sit there and be like, I just said the most perfect on paper training program. And then I would sit there and think about like when I was stuck in the matrix, I call it like stuck in this matrix. I would sit and like think about how I could correct my, my squat form or change my, like, where did I mess up on my squats? Like, what did I do wrong for that? And I like, I finally took a step out. I was like, it doesn't matter. Like when I'm at the plate, that's not what I'm thinking about. That that's not my error. That's not my issue. It's just, that I'm not, I'm not good in the sport or I'm not connected to the sport or my, my focus is off. And, you, you'd see the dude smoking a cigarette and he has like <laughs> a beer belly. Like dude's never squatted in his life. Like, and he's hitting nukes and he just has this confidence. <laughs> he's walking like was brought, like just, he moves better than me. And I trained forever going into it. And so it's like really having that eye opening moment of, okay, like it, it, it doesn't matter. So what does matter? And then like, mm -hmm. how can I expose myself to situations that do matter? And that, that's where I really got into, okay. The physical aspect is great and, and we're going to train that we're going to we're going to move our spine. We're going to add all these quantities that when you do need your physical body, we're, we're going to do it. But it's also like the, the, the movement. Pro like when was the last time a strength coach solved a movement problem that wasn't involving a barbell or a dumbbell, you know, a long time. And when was the last time a, in a game where solving a movement problem with a barbell or dumbbell mattered? And it's never that mm -hmm. like you never solve movement problems on a field with a barbell or dumbbell in your hand. So. It really got to the point where like I need to get better at solving movement problems and I need to become addicted to not barbell, but I need to get addicted to solving movement problems on the field and in sport. And that's something that I really brought to my athletes and myself. It's like this huge revelation of what really matters. What's the stimulus that I want for the day? It's not vertical pro vertical pull and like horizontal mm -hmm. push. It's like I want to solve these certain types of movement problems today. And I want to focus on solving this type of this type of situation today. And that that's where it really started to change how I programmed in quotations for my athletes to really create solvers and addicts of mm -hmm. skill as skill acquisition and solvers of movement problem. And that was a total revelation in kind of what I did with my programming. Yeah. So with your transition away from more that the rigid type warming up, and you know, maybe we've talked about this on the show before, but tell me like athletes roll in now. What's the process now? So athletes come in the door. Take me from that moment until up to you get to the main set of work, whatever that is that you're doing. Well, yeah, this, this will answer the 19 Q and A's I get a week asking about like <laughs> FMS testing and like all the other testing. It's like my, my testing again is watching the athlete walk into the mm -hmm. door. And you, you talked about like what kind of athlete, like how much you can tell about an athlete based off like their pecs and like their shoulders and like what they're looking at and can they figure it out? So watching the athlete walk in the door, 
you can find out a ton about an athlete. Like what's their confidence levels? How, how do they socially interact with people? And that's a, that's a huge part to work on with an athlete. Like if they're unable to socially interact and they don't feel comfortable in their own skin, they don't feel comfortable with teammates. They don't feel comfortable with new people. You have a high school senior going about to go off and meet a hundred new teammates and, and not even a hundred new teammates, but their whole community is about to change when they go to college. And they, these coaches talk about, well, that high school senior is going to have to Olympic lift in college. So I'm going to prepare them for Olympic lifting. Like that high mm-hmm. school senior is going to go and change complete communities. You know, like they're, they're changing total social aspects of their life. Let's let's also like work on these things and work on things that are going to prepare them for that. So let's expose them to different situations. Let's uh, like guys training with females. Like, can can you communicate with a female? Can a female communicate with a male? You know, like that's a huge part, especially nowadays with like TikTok, bro. It's like they, they never set down their phones. They never communicate with same sex people and especially opposite sex people. So like having them communicate and train and set up social settings like that and watching how they do that and then putting them in situations in which that gets challenged. So now you're able to, you're, you're comfortable with that, with your group. What happens when it's challenged? What happens when you're losing? Okay. Now we, now we have, we've set up a situation and it will do this before we're like, we're all stack a team. I'll stack a team. Of, of good guys and i'll put one guy that i know is easily triggered like they're easily triggered to losing and i'll put him on a team i know is going to lose and have him lose like have him lose all day long because he's not used to losing but he's going to lose when he gets to college he's going to lose when he faces like a national champion or faces a high level of competition he's just so used to winning at his current level but again what's your goal with an athlete to, to level them up you know like it's not to have them win all the time they're not going to win all the time and you're like when they, it, they can win all the time, you, you can make Olympic gold medalists left and right, but you can't. So your goal is to level them up and challenge that. And for a lot of people, that's losing. And for some athletes, it's they, they don't win enough. They, they just haven't been expen- like exposed to winning. Like, what's the book? The Body Keeps Score talks a, like, a lot about the cycle. You and I were talking about that book before, but really the deep down psychological components and the, the deep down things that are really keeping athletes from doing what they do. And then just looking at their background. That athlete has never won. They, they've never won in their family. Maybe they're a middle child that's like overlooked by the, like the older child. But we're really never looking at the real barriers to this athlete's mm. success. And if you can pull that back and be like, that athlete just hasn't won before. And now mm. you go put them on a stack team. And you have control of that as a coach. Go put them on a stack team. Have them win for two weeks straight. Watch that athlete completely change. It, he's doing the same exact sets and reps as he was doing before. Still doing the same exercises. It's not like we cut those things out. But his limiting factor was he didn't know how to win or he hadn't been on a winning team before or he just didn't have the confidence to win. And now he's able to win. Now you're taking that athlete's like rate limiting factor. That That's the thing that coaches talk about mm-hmm. all the time. Their yeah. speed rate limiting factor. I think that's holding them back. Their constraint that's holding them back. It's like it's just they, they haven't been exposed to win or they haven't been exposed to failure. And really exposing our athletes to those things has been kind of game changing in where we want to take that athlete. And having those open and honest conversations with the athlete and what they're actually missing, not like he doesn't have big enough biceps or he's not mm-hmm. fast enough in a straight line. Yeah. I just talked about this um, on a Q and a podcast I put together and I've, I've heard it like Julian Pinoa was on talking about this. I've heard a lot of people uh, like Louis Simmons, the late Louis Simmons, but the idea of winning the workout. And I think that a lot of times, like when I think about winning the workout, I tend to put my track and field hat on (laughs) i tend to think about okay well how do i feel like based off where i'm at walking in and then as i warm up what what my body is going to be giving me on the day from a neural perspective and it can change you know if you have a great environment that can change but setting up the frame basically seeing where like an athlete is or if it's my workout seeing where i'm at 
and set the bar just high enough in my mind for them to be able to hit that. Like, I know they can get this there. How can I get them in there? How can they win that from a, an output perspective? And maybe for Louis, for Louis, it was a, a particular weight and, and constraint of lifting. You could save in for basketball. Can you do a, a certain type of dunk today if you're trying to dunk better? And hey, maybe you had to lower the rim, but you still did it. You did this, this different type of dunk at least. You did something you can walk away from. And I've always been so tied into outputs, but I think that thinking about that in the level two of, well, hey, let's set this game up so this athlete can win this today. I, it's And you're totally right too with the way, with the body keeps the score type ideal. And as long as I've been working with athletes and especially in a higher level environment, like like working in college swimming where there's athletes who are going on to be swim pros and you see athletes who come in and maybe if they swam relatively equal times in high school and one went on to win NCAA championships and one did not reach that level, that you start to really look at like those mental components, like how did that athlete carry themselves uh, in the, even regardless of what they actually lifted, how did they carry themselves around the gym? What was their attitude? What was their demeanor? Even if you watched them, you stepped on the pool deck and you watched them in the water and it was something challenging. How did they respond to that? And even too, like how was the rest of their life? You know, what did they end up doing in, in other facets of their life? And it's something that I think goes be uh, very far beyond just, hey, can you do this exercise correctly? Like finding a way for them to win and getting some confidence in, you know, not just, I guess, an output, but probably a game too, especially if they're a sport athlete, not track or swing, that even being higher on the totem pole than, well, hey, I want, I want you to win this speed training workout, you know, linear speed running 20s. Like, let me find you a way to feel good about your, your 20 time, but even more so, I felt good that I could win at this game because I never felt that way playing before in my life. That, that makes a lot of sense to me from that perspective. Yeah, and and with the track athlete, track and wrestling are two two sports where it's a very individualized too, and it, they're not like ball sport athletes too. And so it's like, well, I get a lot of questions too. It's like, well, how do you approach this with a, a track athlete? How do you approach this with like a wrestling athlete where it's not a ball? Like, do you still play mm-hmm. games? Yes, like I absolutely. It's like, and it's been one. It's almost so. It's almost better for them because it's mm-hmm. so outside of their sport, and they really have no experience with it. Like. We we had a we had a track sprinter that was with us for a couple months, and he when he was training with us, his confidence was just crap, and he was so focused, like he was so stuck in this same repetitive, like need to have my knees here, need to have my arms mm-hmm. here. Yeah, it, was, it was like hit, what his his constraint was was just like he was just stuck in his head, like he was so stuck in his own body that he wasn't able to move his body. And what the game allowed him to do was just go play again, go play again, go do these things, go play for a little bit, go win, go see what happens when you win in this. And he's like. You finally get like a little bit of swagger back, like that little bit of loosey goosey, like the rhythmic motion that you want all great athletes to have. And I was able to take that to sprinting. And we, we saw it, like, you know, fly, his flying tens improved significantly when he was with mm-hmm. us. And we did nothing technique wise. Yeah. And he probably sprinted less than he sprinted when he was on his track team. In his, not probably, he for sure sprinted yeah. less volume wise, straight line when he was with us than when he was with his track team. But he's playing these games. He gets a little bit of swagger back. He gets out of his head. He's able to do what he like. He, he was able to do it. He was able to do it in call or in high school. He got to college, got stuck in this like fear base. Oh, like what's going to happen? Uh, and he freezes up, fight or flight, gets in this freeze mode. And he's able to do what he was able to do before. And all he did was release that. Same with wrestlers. The wrestlers big because a lot of, especially in really competitive wrestling programs, a lot of it is just like it's one wrestle off. Like it's a wrestle off. Mm-hmm. And if you lose that wrestle off, basically you got to back that guy up for the rest of the year and you don't get the wrestle. And it's kind of a, it's pretty tough sport. It's pretty like mono we mono. If you mess up at all, you're kind of done. So allowing the confidence for like wrestlers to come back a little bit, like I lost that wrestle off and I was just like, you saw, you, you see them like they come in with their shoulders rounded, looking down at the ground. Like, Oh, you know exactly what happened before it even happened. 
And then, but they're going to have another wrestle off in three weeks. And you spend the next three weeks sulking about the last wrestle off. And even if you're working out and doing those things, you don't have the confidence and you're scared. And you're, you're again, you're working out scared. You're, you're working out. It doesn't matter how many sets and reps. If every time you, you get a bench press and you go walk and sulk again, like you're just almost like repeating that mm-hmm. brain thought process in your brain that you're, you're not a winner. You're not, but you get them to go play a game. You're going to go compete with other people in another aspect. They get them. They get the shoulder blades back and standing up tall and smiling again. And when they get mm-hmm. to go to that wrestle off, at least they're giving themselves a fighting chance of I'm confident and I'm able to do this. I've done it with 17 different other people. I've won in all these different environments. And I, I just, I, I just feel like that's so important for every athlete, every human, like every human. Same with life and and all these all these sports of life that you want to play. Allowing your allowing your ability to play and imagine and and win and lose and balancing these things out with a community that allows you to balance them out is so much more important than are we preparing them to Olympic lift or not? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I love that. I, I, the, the are we preparing them for to Olympic lift? And you know what? What are you going to do in college? And it's like it's so much more than that. It's I mean to be supposed to be good in college. It's like is your ability to to get with the Olympic lifting program faster in college going to dictate your success as a college athlete? Probably not. But I, um, you know, when you were saying with the track athlete too, it reminds me of when I would work with the Cal women's swim team, they had a consultant, Milton Elms. I've probably mentioned this on the show and they had a practice of swimming in the ocean for that reason that you mentioned basically. And, and in swimming, I think it's even more so in my experience with track and field, you do have those people who are very mechanically minded and back to the A skips too. I often saw the people who took the A skips the most seriously would tend to just get, I mean, again, there's, you know, there's obvious genetics at play, but like a lot of the best genetic sprinters didn't seem to care about the A skips that much. And it was like, you know, their coach is always trying to really get them to care. Oh, they should care about this more. You know, they should really try to hit these positions more. But then um, when the, those guys would, who didn't care about the skips that much would actually go sprint, they would just and, and I can, they would really turn it up and they would really blaze the track. And now knowing everything that I do and learning from folks like Adarian Barr, I can see exactly what they were. It's almost like there's a feeling too with it sometimes. I don't want to get carried away on this topic, but in talking with Seth Lintz, a pitching doctor, he talks about there's feelings associated with these high performances and the individual outputs and skills. And I think that sometimes these athletes who know what it's like to go fast, they know that feeling. Maybe they don't find it in the A skip, so they just kind of check out. They don't take it that far. I think there's a lot of great athletes, great track athletes who take that really seriously too at the same time. I can't say that it's definitely not true that all great track athletes just don't really care on sprint drills. A lot of them do, but there's even then there's like a fluidity to it, I think. Like it's usually the people who rigidly do these A skips as if that's the thing that's going to get them fast. And so anyways, the the with the, the ocean though, the swim consultant would have these in swimming, I feel like it's much more rife for these athletes to be even more obsessed with position because, and maybe part of that's the water. You have more time to find the position. It's a little slower. It's like one stroke a second. So you can really like find that position that the coach is telling you to do. And part of the swimming in the ocean is it would break that because you have waves and like they would always swim when there was like little, you know, wait, not like huge, like not curls, monster curls coming in, but enough that you couldn't just sit on whatever the position you had been taught was. You had to actually react. And I was like, yeah, reacting, that's it. And let's have people react and see what they do. And you would see transformations uh, technically from these swimmers going from very rigid, trying to find these positions to all of a sudden just reacting and and it almost really playing because there was a lot of playing in that too. You'd see play breaking out. You'd see people playing on waves. And that was a really powerful 
just observing that, I thought that was always really interesting and it made an impact on me with how I view land-based skills. What I wanted to say, uh, actually, I wanted to ask you this question. You mentioned the the guy with the beer belly and the cigarette who would go out and just rip it. And I've thought of this, I, I'm curious your opinion on this because I think back to the best, like the best athlete, the all-star athlete when I was in high school. I've had conversations with other strength coaches on this. Is the best athlete when I was in high school, when it, he was in my strength and conditioning class, he just cared about bench press. When it came time to squat, he just did quarter squats with 135 when the strength coach wasn't looking. And this guy was, I mean, this guy was amazing, like all-state soccer player. He was 5'9 and could dunk. I mean, and like first team point guard. He played golf in the offseason. Like, and I think with those athletes, they hang their hat on the fact that they have it at their sport. Where I think sometimes it could be like in a gym setting, it's like, well, you don't have it, so get some confidence through the lifting. And I guess I'm trying to figure out, because I do think it's good to get confidence through lifting, but I feel like that paradigm never leads to you really being as good as you can at your sport, because you're always trying to, you're, you're giving it away to something else, if that makes sense. But then at the same time, I think there's obviously great things that happen with discipline and the iron and everything in that perspective, and maybe they're almost separate. You know what I'm saying? Like on one end, you have sport and don't try to find confidence. Don't go off to the weight room because you had a bad practice and try to find your validation. Find a way to live in that and practice and figure the shit out, you know? And then, I don't know, I'm just curious what your thought is on that because I think there's obvious benefits to the weight room as well in its own container. And there's, I think, some crossover, how you do anything is everything. I'm just giving you that question there to see what your take is on that. Yeah, well, I was writing that down because my brain was going with that. But it's like, exactly what you said like what you want is confidence what you want is discipline and how you are able to get that instantly is a barbell especially for like wide asa like compression-based athletes and myself like i'm gonna go and easily get that in the weight room so it's like this it's just quick dopamine hit for me like that's all it is like it's this quick dopamine hit and we 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 associate and then you have all these coaches justifying well it builds confidence it builds comp like it's like it's just this post hoc justification of what it it is what you want with an athlete is for them to be confident that is totally correct and and the weight room can provide that in a weight room context but i can all but promise you a confident athlete in the weight room that, that does as soon as you get to something they suck at they are not confident anymore so like the best way to get confident at something is to get competent at it mm-hmm. you know and that that's what these compression based this is what i did i got competent at lifting and i got confident because of that so i could walk into a weight room and i could own it I walk into anything I'm not good at. I'm not going to be confident. I'm not, I'm not walking onto a basketball court super confident in my abilities. If there, there's a 6'6", super slender guy that I know I can outbench, I am not confident guarding him or trying to shoot against him. That dude is going to own me. Like he's, he's way more competent in his sport. So it's like we, we, we're looking at this quick hit dopamine fix for, for everything. When it can be applied, you can do the same thing. You can get all the confidence and competent going to the field or or going to a scale or doing it all, which is, which is the big part of it. It's like, we're talking about this. I don't cut out the confidence that lifting gives them. I, I'm not mm-hmm. just, I'm not just cutting that off and saying, you never lift. I'm not saying that we, we go and lift and we go get that aspect so they can walk into a weight room and they're competent and confident. But I also want them to walk into any situation with their bodies and be competent and confident. You know, mm-hmm. can you roll? Can, can you fall? Can you do these things? Yeah. Can you walk onto, can you solve all these movement problems? So it's like, as brutal as like as brutalized of a word as it is this holistic method of i want you to be able to do it all it's it's not throwing anything out it's just not putting all of our eggs into one thing mm-hmm. and really again it's like it's still it's, it's like keeping the goal the goal as cliche as that is but it's like the goal is confidence again 
How do you get that? You become competent at what you want to do. And our goal is to expand that competence to as many different domains as that athlete is going to face. He's going to face situations in which he needs to move somebody. Maybe the weight room helps with that, but maybe moving somebody else and grappling somebody else also helps with that. And I've seen athletes where it's like they're super strong and they can't move somebody and they're not confident in their pass rush moves. I have never seen an athlete get more confident in their pass rush moves that didn't have a pass rush move by lifting more weights, Mm. you know? They, they got more confident in their pass rush moves by practicing their pass rush moves or practicing things that allowed them to understand their pass rush moves better. So maybe it's a little, because sometimes if you just throw them in the pass rush moves, they, they don't, it's too much for them. So you need to pull it back a little bit and go grappling drills. And this is where I've seen, it's like athletes exponentially increase their ability to pass rush because they're doing these grappling drills. And it's like this light bulb moment, like, oh, that's how a body folds like that. That's how a body moves when you pull like that. And once you get that light bulb moment, that the confidence starts to kick and they get a little bit more confident and then you can gradually progress them throughout these kind of methods. But it's like a barbell is not going to do that for them. It's going to keep them as far away. And it's almost worse because it creates like this fake s- sense of it for both you as a coach and you as an athlete. It's like you feel good. Everybody feels good. You know, everybody feels good smoking pot, too. Like that doesn't mean it's a good thing. You know, like you get a dopamine hit. You feel great. OK, that's awesome. Like. It's not solving any of your problems. It, it's masking them. And then that's a little bit of like, and that's not to say about barbells, like you, mm-hmm. the barbell's not smoking pot. I get that. But it's like the barbell is not going to solve your actual issue, which is not being competent enough at the skill set you want to be at. And it, it, it's going to just mask that for you. And it's going to hide it until you step onto the field or you step on the practice where now you're the strength coach's best friend and you're the private sector coaches. Like he posted all your numbers and it was sweet. And now you're getting laid out at practice, which is exactly what happened to me. And it's exactly what happens to meatheads all over the world after 12 week training sessions with your favorite strength coach. Hmm. Yeah, I, I like that. I, you know, I think about it's almost like, you know, with, it's really a balance. I, I think about too, well, it is interesting because I remember very vividly <laughs> working with tennis at Cal, men's tennis. We had a group called unofficially just called Swole Group because it was the athletes who kind of weren't getting to play and checked out that we're in swole group <laughs> because I, and, and i think about this though i'm like well i don't know i mean if you're not if in your mind like you're okay with not playing and, and you want to pursue the physical side and i think sometimes i think too like you know if you've been a tennis player your whole life and you know you're not going to see a whole lot of like six foot 215 pound super jacked tennis players <laughs> at, at any stage of things just because I think the nature of the game and rotation and, and the strength and speed endurance component and whatnot. And then just also like the skill, you know, the skill mastery uh, element of it being important. But, you know, just these athletes for, I guess, maybe for the first time in their life feeling that they had a chance, like, hey, I want to see how far I can take this, like, and, and to go for it, you know, but it was almost because like tennis wasn't quite as important for them anymore. And so, you know, I think about it's probably a little bit, you know, just re- dependent on where someone is in their life too, I suppose. I, I I feel like I see it a fair amount. It's athletes who they start lifting for their sport and then eventually maybe they lose interest in their sport and then they keep lifting because that was fun, you know? <laughs> so I guess they, maybe that's where I go too with like, well, well, then maybe not what's the point, but you know, what am I trying to give you? What am I trying to offer the athlete in front of you? What am I trying to offer you to serve you with your end? What's, what is your life goal? And I guess I think of that from the spectrum of that, that all-star point guard soccer player in my high school who did quarter squats when the strength coach wasn't looking to the athlete who, you know, I, I guess I'm good on sport. I'm going to move into the next phase or whatever, you know, 
Maybe it's just maybe not trying to mix the two. I don't know. I'm just kind of, I'm just, you know, you got my mind running a little bit on this kind of thing. And, you know, at what point do you call that distinction a thing? Or maybe I can bring this into a max strength question is at what point, you know, do you frame, are, are you strong enough? You know, that's obviously a question too, but is there like a mental frame? Is there a time given to this frame? I think more so than just saying, well, don't lift more. I don't know. Maybe just devote less time to it or whatever. I mean, just how do you go about that balance of things and how long you play games, how much time you spend lifting? for different groups and things like that yeah well i think it goes back to asking the question of like what does the athlete want like i think that that's super important what does the athlete want what does the athlete need what has the athlete had so it's like the tennis group it's like okay they could probably get a lot out of the weight room mentally and physically because they've spent 99 percent of their lives on a tennis court Mm -hmm. so it's like lifting is new and they're not confident there and they can learn all these new skill things but it's like so you can get like the, the process of like challenging them and learning something new there. You get an American football guy, they've spent 99% of their life in the weight room. So it's like one, you have like, you don't have a ton, of lot of low hanging fruit there. So if we're looking just physically, like there's not a lot of, there's not a ton of low hanging fruit there. They're strong. They, they can produce force. They might not know how to produce it in the right ways. Like that, that's going back to the pass rushing, the grappling. Maybe it's like sprinting, uh, racing at what time mm-hmm. do they produce force, whatever you want to say. But I, I really have yet to meet an American football player that comes to me in a college world that doesn't really know how to produce force. Mm-hmm. Like they, they know how to produce it at an ample level. Like they might not be the, the highest in the world in the American football world, but if you look at them compared to any other sport, like they, they're, they're pretty competent in that. So it's where's the low hanging fruit around them mentally and physically, spiritually as well, if you really want to mm-hmm. go there. And, and then it, again, it's, it's not eliminating any, anything. It's mm-hmm. just like getting them to understand where their low hanging fruit is. And getting them addicted to like grabbing that low hanging fruit yeah. and moving forward with that low hanging fruit rather than continually giving them their drug of choice, which is something that they're good at. And that, that's a big thing, too. It's like what most people need to do is what they're bad at. But nobody wants to do that. Nobody yeah. wants to do what they're bad at because it, it doesn't give you that dopamine hit right away for and especially <laughs> in most environments that are created. It's like the reason that compression based athlete loves to lift a bunch of weight because they're good at it and when they do it a coach just pats them on the back and draws everybody's attention to them and like look at this this is amazing this is perfect that same athlete goes in sprints nobody like that coach isn't hyping him up because he sucks at it and then so like you're not getting any reward for it you're probably getting shamed for it being told you're slow being told you're too big being told all your which is all bs it's like you just haven't done it enough you haven't done it enough that's that's really your answer You've, you've done you've spent so long weightlifting of course you're good at it you haven't sprinted, you haven't played these games, you haven't moved your body in this way, of course you're not good at it. So creating that environment and and dosing all of it, but really creating an environment in which when they go to do these things, you almost give them that dopamine hit and you reward it and you create an environment in which these things are rewarded of like, you learned a new skill, everybody is hyped for you, you you failed trying to learn that new skill, everybody's still hyped for you and we're laughing and we're having joy and we're we're getting these Mm -hmm. little like hits of like, oh, this is fun, man. Like, this is exactly like, I want to keep doing this. I want to, that's really how you, again, I want to create addicts of skill acquisition. That, that is one of my main goals. And, and the, to do mm-hmm. that, you really need to create an environment around that. And again, it's not eliminating anything, but it's like playing around with these things and understanding what, what that athlete needs and what they've already been exposed to and what they're bad at. And then allowing them to have an environment in which they can go explore things they're bad at. The body keep score talks about how play is one of the, like, a, a patient that suffers from trauma, like one of the worst things that happens to them is they don't play anymore. Mm-hmm. And when you don't play, you can't imagine. And when you can't imagine, you can't, you can't move forward at all. If you can't imagine, you can't play. And the, 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 he was talking about how they're very closely resembled, like play and imagination. 
And if you can't play and you can't imagine, you can never move forward because imagination is prediction of the future. It's thought processes about the future. And the greatest athletes I've ever had, like go ask a great athlete. They're going to tell you, I'm going to go win MVP. I'm like, that's an imagination. Like they're, they're predicting that in their head. They're imagining that in their head. They're playing that out in their head. And when you have an athlete that is unable to do that because they're stuck in their shell and, and they're, they're not in an environment in which they're able to imagine and play, like they can't move forward. They, they really can't move forward. They're really stuck in their own story of this is who I am. This is what I'm good at. This is what I'm bad at. And breaking that story is probably your number one goal as a strength coach, as a sports performance coach, as a mentor, mm-hmm. whatever it is, breaking that story and allowing them to imagine and play again and in an environment in which that's rewarded. I wanted to take a quick minute to tell you about my story with our sponsor, Lost Empire Herbs. Several years ago, I had strongman and mental training expert Logan Christopher on the show. And in the interview, I realized that Logan, in addition to deadlifting over 500 pounds and ripping phone books in half, also was the founder of an herbalism company. Long story short, I ended up ordering the Phoenix Formula, one of their flagship products. And In taking that, I noticed increased energy and a decreased reliance on coffee, which honestly, I was kind of expecting that. But what I didn't expect is after a few weeks, I noticed my weight room numbers had increased substantially. And the Phoenix formula also led me to getting shilajit resin, which is found in the Phoenix formula and recommended by a lot of strength coaches, as well as other Lost Empire Herbs products. I've been using Lost Empire Herbs ever since, and I have sponsors of the show that I believe in, that I use, and that I want to share with you. So if you want to check them out, head to lostempireherbs.com slash just fly for 15% off my favorite Lost Empire Herbs products. You get a 365-day money-back guarantee. I really enjoy having Lost Empire Herbs as a sponsor of this show, and I hope you get a chance to check out what they have to offer. Let's get back to the podcast. Yeah, I think that environment's important, like the what the body keeps the score, like athletes feeling uh, safe to, to, to encounter that low-hanging fruit. Because I think for some people, it would seem like nothing, like, oh, you just need to get better at that part of your game. Doesn't that, isn't that easy? <laughs> like, you know, but for some people, there might be elements that are, you know, especially too, and maybe on the flip side too, like putting athletes in areas or situations or games where they have often failed and they don't feel as good about their abilities or something like that. I mean, I've, I've talked about this on the podcast before, but I... I hung my hat on just being athletic as a high school basketball player. I wanted to be able to dunk and I felt good about that. And if the other team wasn't very athletic, I could do pretty well. But as soon as they were decently athletic, closer or better than me, I crumbled. Like I was, I, I, it's like, I don't have my thing, my, my strength, my thing. And I'm done. Like just, just even mentally, like everything just shut down. And, you know, it would have been good for me to dig into that. Like, you know, I, if I could go back in time to dig in uh, with a coach who really set me up to break through all my weak links in the game itself and to play in like game constraints that set me into that. I think too, you talked about like, like lifting as a drug, like all these like training modalities have like drug-like effects. And I feel like within that, like you said, you don't eliminate anything. It's not like, oh, you can't lift because especially an athlete who does. And I look at myself, like if I was told, hey, you know, you're not, here's all the areas in basketball that you fail at. Here's the situations you fail at. Well, you, you know, stop doing all those plyometrics and trying to jump so high and just get better at basketball. That wouldn't have worked. <laughs> I know I would have done really poorly with that. You know, I would have, I would have really struggled. So I think that keeping that in there, it's fine. And I think it does get to hair splitting. You can hair split. Well, well how strong is too strong? Well, I don't know if you just spend a 
small reasonable amount of time on it a week and you have a good mentality around it does it really matter that much you know it's uh it probably can be hair splitting at some point as long as it's just a function of well how much time are you spending on it? are you making sure you're spending the right amount of time on the other things versus well we just you know shouldn't do this at all or or maybe we could just change the way we do it a little bit you know it doesn't i don't think it has to be this fine point that you have hit this amount and now we don't do it or or, or whatever, because there's still that drug-like effect that does, people still do take a level of confidence in it. And, and a strong athlete's going to get stronger. They, yeah. they like doing it. Like like you said, like it's like, you're not going to force an athlete not to do what they're good at. Like, the, mm-hmm. you, you, you're not, you're not going to stop that. Like, I have athletes that like, they, they need to move sprints and jump and like do plyometrics. That's what they need to do. So I'm going to give them that dose. When we get to the weight room, like, they love doing it. So like, they're just going to keep going. They're going to get stronger. Like, I've yet to have an athlete that is strong that loves weightlifting that hasn't got stronger just because it's already in their head. It's like I know they know how to get strong. They they do. They, so it's like it's automatic. It's almost automatically going to happen as long as you don't like. And I, I've never met a strength coach that like takes it away from them. Like mm-hmm. I, I, maybe I don't know, but like I'm not going to take that drug away from them. And they know how to do it. They know how to use that drug. They they're going to step in the weight room. They're going to load up that barbell. They're going to get freaky strong, and it's going to happen kind of automatically. But it's like. That's not where you need to t- spend your time with that athlete as a coach or talking to them. About. They, they know how to use that drug. They know how to inject that needle. They have no idea how to use the other drug mm-hmm. that they're not good at. And the tennis players, it's opposite. Tennis yeah. players know how to use the drug of skill acquisition in their with their rack and in their tennis paddle. Like they don't know how to use the drug of, of walking into weight room and getting strong and using those things. So it's almost like teaching the athlete how to use their drugs that are all around them. Yeah. I like uh, Austin, the idea of I, I'm building people who are addicted to skill development. You know, that makes me think of like the Edo Portal, like you're always trying, here's like a new skill. Can you master this? Can you? And I think you learn something about yourself too, when you go about that process. I mean, I remember when I went to Return of the Source, Rafe Kelly's retreat and all these parkour, that was actually, a lot of that was difficult for me because a lot of that nature parkour type stuff, I mean, I, I've done all sorts of plyometrics in a very a very like fixed a more fixed environment but now it's like okay here's logs and stones and water and 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 all this stuff that i like i literally have to adapt to this on the fly and there was a lot of um i think being around other people who were much better at that than me there was a lot of insecurity to go through that but going through it i when i went back to the gym after the next week like there was skills that I hadn't been able to do before or was too afraid to to do and encounter. Like one of them was, I don't know the name of the move, but when you're on monkey bars, you swing uh, and there are two monkey bars of the same height. Like let's say they're both eight feet off the ground. You swing from one through the air, like six or seven feet and you catch yourself on the other. And there was a set at the gym that I had tried to do. This was before I went to the retreat and I couldn't do it. Like I took a couple tries in my mind. I'm like, oh, this is too hard. I don't think I can do this. And one of the other trainers could even do it. Like he did it. And I was like, wow, good for you, buddy. You know, that's awesome. But I, and I gave up. And it's funny because I'm like, I'm not, I, you know, I would usually think of myself as, oh, I'll work hard. Like I'll really dig in deep, you know. But it's like, well, Joel, you'll dig in deep to things you're comfortable at, you know. And so, anyways, went to return to the source, got very uncomfortable being around people who were, you know, you just nature parkour is problem solving. Like, and so amongst other things, it is a very problem solving activity. Like, even if you want to make a certain jump, you kind of got to, Maybe you find a smaller jump and, oh, I can make that. Okay, let me find another bridge jump. Okay, I can do that. And you kind of have to work with your mental space. And long story short, I went back to the gym and I that jump I couldn't hit before I went and I figured out how to do it. And I figured out how to do it by 
Well, I was like, all right, well, instead of trying to leap from bar to bar, I'm just going to leap. And if I can just land on the ground in this spot, I'll try to land on this spot and I'll keep pushing that spot out on the ground. And eventually that spot on the ground coincided with being able to jump and catch that next bar. And I did it. And I did it because it was like, I just went through something that taught me how to solve problems. And I think you could take that to many things, you know, beyond, and you could take that into your sport, like that, that skill building addict thing, because you have to work through insecurity <laughs> and, and you have to work through things you're afraid of. And you have to work through things you look bad at. And that in itself is a, its own skill. And I, it seems to me like that's certainly something you do on a regular basis or a daily basis with your groups. Well, that, that, I was reading Thinking Fast and Slow. And one, one of my biggest things I loved from that book was talking about, he talked about like, what you see is all you know. And it's like this mental map of the world that has been created through your life. And, and it's like, you and I could see the same exact, like same exact physical object and see two totally different mm-hmm. things. And then you see it in athletic world all the time. Rob Gray talks about like constraints, like two running backs see the exact same hole. One athlete sees it as an opportunity to run straight and make a touchdown. The other one sees it as it's going to close down because I don't have the speed. I'm not able to do it, mm. whatever, and goes to a different direction. Mm. So you can take the physical route of like, he, he's on, he's constrained by his speed. But what I see it is, is it's like you need somebody else or something else outside of your worldview that you currently have. You need to break that worldview to actually see something else or you're never going to see something else. You know, you're never going to see a different mental model of the world. And I think that's what, learning allows you to do is because when you're learning something you 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 physically like you actually don't see the world in that way because you don't have that ability you don't have that whatever it is that you're learning yes maybe it's a cartwheel whatever maybe it's going inverted but you don't have that view of the world yet because you don't have that ability you don't have that skill and when you go to something else that allows you to see it you go to um, maybe it is just a gym that like ours that we're doing different things and you're able to like see like my body can move this way that's such a different view of the world than you had before and that allows you to do then it's exponential like then it's exponential it's nothing that i do now you just see the world in a view of like my body is capable of doing these things my body is capable of doing all of these things rather than this certain skill set that you had before and you talk about going to race retreat and now now you're coming back and able to see the world quite differently than before and you, you see it in like powerlifting all the time like going to louis louis talked about this all the time at the west side too it's like people who go there think they're strong and mm-hmm. they would see the world in a completely different perspective with a different power lifter that is just eating weights yeah. like they're warming up with your max out that is having your worldview shifted in what strong is and of course you're going to get stronger then because you, you literally had your worldview shifted so it's like it goes into the culture of what you're doing too but really exposing your athletes to a different worldview and like the athletes have been exposed to traditional three by 10 a skip warmups. Like they, 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 they know that world. You're not exposing them to anything in the, those worlds. Like they know those worlds. What I really think you can do as a strength coach is like bring them into an environment in which they're being exposed to a different worldview, a different world model. So they can start to expo- have that exponential growth of this is what I'm capable of because somebody else is capable of, or because I've proven it to myself that I'm capable of it. But if you never challenge an athlete or you never expose an athlete, because it's not pretty, like bringing a super strong guy to a to a powerlifting gym, like Louis would bring a super strong guy to a powerlifting gym, he's going to have his ego hurt. Mm-hmm. Like that person's going to have their ego hurt. You're not going to make a good business model off hurting people's egos. Yeah. Like you obviously have to balance it out. Like he's going to go there and be like, this is bullshit. Like something's up here. Like, you know, like, or I can't do this. This is bullshit. We have athletes all the time. So you have to balance it out a little bit. But it's not pretty like it's showing people a different worldview. They're not going to agree with it either. Like 
if a lot of times we'll have analytical athletes come in, like they're the super, like the accountants, like, like athletes that are majoring in accounting, they'll come in and they're super analytical and you start to, and they're like, why, 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 what's mm-hmm. going on? When the track be able to go through and it takes a long time to break down that athlete's worldview that has been built up over years and years and years. And most coaches just aren't willing to do that. And it's hard because they come to you as 22 year olds, seeing the world in the same way and they're going to college. Like they're successful students, successful athletes in some regard. So it's like their worldview has got them to a certain point in life and they have data points to show that. And now you have to be the one to just break it just a little bit. And like, why should they believe your worldview or why should they look at the world just a little bit differently? And that's a real skill set as a coach is showing them why it's worth it to change their worldview that has got them so far in life. And that's what I feel like a lot of coaches are unwilling to do because it's much easier just to be like, we all see the world the same way. Like we see the world the same way. Let's just keep going with it because then I don't have to, I don't have to hurt your ego. You don't have to, because that's a part of it as a coach too. It's like when a coach or an athlete asks why, like they're challenging your worldview in that point and you don't want your worldview challenged. And if you're unwilling to have that part be opened up, then it's like you're hurt as a coach too. So it's much easier to just everybody be on the same page and do through it. But then you really lose out on that exponential growth of both of you seeing the world in a different light that could allow you to actually move forward rather than just continually running that circle of data points that you already have. Yeah. We talked at the beginning of the show about asking questions. Like it's asking those questions that help you as a coach to start changing your worldview on that process. But I I think about in a skill session or building a skill addict, I think about how many questions is the athlete forced to ask in the scope of a session? And like you would think about, well, games it's easy because the athlete, if there's a strategy an athlete is losing at, they need to ask themselves the question, how do they solve that? And I think games are easy to bring that up. I mean, you could think of it for some more fixed skills. If it's a, you know, sprinting or throwing or something like that, and there's a, there's a particular constraint that that sprinting or throwing is being presented in. But I, so often I think in training, it's, if it's presented as, well, here's the technique and do it this way. And here's this and do it this way, then that doesn't leave a whole lot of room for the athlete to ask questions. And so it's almost in some ways a, a metric of sorts, you could say that, well, hey, I want, I want there to be questions presented on the, the level of the athlete. But like you said as well, like you have like those very analytical minds who they want to overanalyze everything. So it's like, well, the question, <laughs> I don't know, maybe I guess there's, there's a limit to that, but it's more, they're asking questions because you know, it's not clear-cut presented exactly in the way that is very controllable and that's always sport it's not it's it's awesome because it's not controllable like there's you're going to have to adapt and you're going to have to ask questions and there's a regular problem solving aspect to it so well that that just made me think of something and this this is a kind continue the tangent of a little bit it's like the thinking fast and slow book talked about how unless you're really pushing your type one brain it wants to automate everything. So it's trying to automate everything in life. And if you have stupid students, if you have students that you've created to be dumb and not ask questions, then that kind of automates your, your kind of life as a coach. Mm-hmm. They're not asking questions they're not challenging you. Mm-hmm. And that's super easy for you. And when you have 10 sessions a day, like there's, there's no way, there's no way I make it through 10 of my sessions a day. There's no way there's no way mm-hmm. with the questions I'm asking, the conversations I'm having, the, the emotional dumps that I'm getting, yeah. like there's no way I make it through 10 of those sessions a day. So if you are in an environment that you've built out in which you need to survive 10 of those sessions a day, you're going to try to automate it in a sense of like, if they're not asking questions, I can save emotional energy. I can save like 
pieces of my own energy and you have to go live it with the family and like do things on the other aspects other parts of your life too so it's like these coaches that are stuck in these environments in which you have to coach 10 sessions a day it's like of course you're automating it to where you don't want them asking questions if if i had 10 of my sessions bro i'm like not not drained like i feel like lit up and i love the conversations that we're having but there's no way i could do the in-depth conversations i'm having 10 times a day with hundreds of athletes but in the call-up sector it's like it kind of makes sense in a way it's like it's almost like a coach's survival mechanism to make it through the end of their day because for five to six days a week they have 10 hours on the floor coaching hundreds of athletes and if they can just dumb down their athletes and dumb down their and automate everything to where nobody's asking questions then it's like i save emotional energy and it's kind of like that survival mechanism of that's kind of why they set it up that way because if they don't automate it they're going to burn themselves out instantly and they're going to have no energy left to do anything yeah what a, what's the type one brain again i've i've read thinking fast and slow but i can't remember is that like the conscious like was that like the conscious thinking brain versus the subconscious or can you can you um go into that just like really quick? The, yeah the type one's like your reactive oh react- okay. reactive like it's, it's already doing everything like oh, it's it. just making the choices right away and the type two is where you have Hopefully I have that right. Make sure I don't mess it up. Somebody's going to be like, no, you're wrong. But the type, the other brain is the, yeah, the, the conscious, like you actually have to think, you actually have to pause. You actually have these conversations and questions. Um, they're talking about like how, how it sets up in a way in which your brain wants to automate everything. And it just wants to run the mental map that you have in your head automatically. And unless you, you stop that consciously, it, it just runs that. So then you don't like, basically you can save and conserve all this mental energy for things that like threats, fight or flight moments. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I like that. It makes me think too, you know, I I feel like that the athlete, even the question asking, it can be in some ways, it can just be observing the fact that athletes are, are needing to try things to solve a problem. Like Tony Hollers talked about even in the scope of speed of as, as an example, a workout where they're running three or four flying tens. And he'll say, I can see them trying something different every sprint. And I don't think he's saying that in context of him telling them stuff. I think it's like, hey, we're doing these fly tens. You get a knowledge of result, and and the athletes actually trying something on their own. And I, there's there's something that's really powerful that there's there's research that just came out here this year on. And I think most people listening are very aware of this and familiar with this. But it was you know just a basic. It was rugby female rugby rugby players running twenty yard dashes, and there was a group that just sprinted and they got their time. There was a group that raced somebody. And there was a group that was told some, you know, some cue, like, you know, I think it was like hit the ground hard or something like that. And the, the, I mean, it's pretty clear. The people who just ran and got the time ran faster. And the people who chased somebody, I think they ran about the same, maybe it was like a hundredth off or something, but it was about the same exact time as people who saw the clock. People who are coached to do something ran like the tenth or something slower. But that knowledge of result, I think is so cool. We've seen that, uh, that showed up in the literature and I think discus throwing as well. Like, people who were coached versus people who literally just threw it and it's like all right you threw 55 meters all right go again you know and and you have to ask yourself you have to ask the question well what felt good about that what what am i going to try differently what am i going to think about on the next throw versus that it's almost like it's a lot of times it can be presented where it's like all right here's the skills here's the drills here's the technique i need to make sure everyone's doing but I think it's not often presented. How can I allow space for the athlete to ask that question? And where can I allow space to see them trying different solutions to the problem? And I think, you know, I like the speed thing too, because I think speed is so often presented as a series of exact positions. And here's all the cues you're going to give. And 
I just love Tony's anecdote because like, here's the time and I saw athletes trying things you know, as they went along. And, you know, that's, that's, that space. I just love anecdotes where that space is given. And I just think that, yeah, it's something that's definitely um, not talked about that often or enough. Well, and that, that makes me think of like my, my track and field days too. It's like, like this made me think a lot. It's like, unless you're a master coach, which like, unless you're like one in a million and you were just like a savant that is seeing something that nobody else is your cues probably suck. Like what you're seeing <laughs> is wrong is probably wrong. And what that does is like, it doesn't allow the athlete to listen or actually solve that problem by themselves or giving them an environment in which they can solve that environment by themselves. So it's like, I remember throwing and it would be like a good throw, like a good throw would happen and you would get a cue of like, do something different. It's like, ah, oh. and then, so you would just gradually get put in these boxes, but it's like, it's, it's not this master savant coach. It's just like what he mm-hmm. thinks in his head. And it's like, trying to expel that out there so now it's like you're trapping your athlete in this box i just remember it's like this from when i had this figured out everything felt fluid rhythmic i wasn't thinking about anything to like i started to throw i started to throw far so then my coach paid more attention to me and as soon as my coach paid more attention to me he gave me more cues and as soon as i got more cues (laughs) i started to suck more because it was like these cues weren't right and and that is not because the coach like we're all bad like we're not we're all not like unless you're an absolute again unless you're an absolute savant you're not seeing the actual real things that are happening in that athlete's head or that athlete's body. So you got to build that environment. Cause if you're giving these cues, like I, I just started getting trapped by these cues and these thought processes. And it's just, I was so stuck in that thought process of like, I got to do this, 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 and this checklist. And I, it, it turned, it made me a worse thrower. The more attention I got from my coach, which is such an oxymoron, but I saw it over and over again. Mm-hmm. I see it with track coaches. I see it with I see it with throwers. Throwers is unbelievable. I'm like, I see it all the time with throwers. It's like a coach hat pays more attention. And as soon as they pay more attention, they, they start to suck. And for me, it really wasn't pressure. Like pressure was never the issue there. Cause I would go on the football field and it would be, I love that. Like, I love game day. Like I would get yeah. a high off of that. I would, it wasn't like a super nervous thing. I'm like, kind of get a little bit of high like that. It was be like, I would get stuck in this. You need to have your arms here. And it was never that before. So it's like, Unless you you really truly believe you have all the answers, and I can all but promise you don't, you gotta find a different way for that athlete to self regulate. Maybe maybe it is just like how far they're throwing, and then getting them in environments. And maybe if you do see something, creating an environment in which you can work on that something in a way in which again that athlete is self regulating. Maybe so. Maybe it's like in a hammer they're dragging the hammer, and you need to have them do a lighter hammer or a heavier hammer or those environments. But it's like your cues are just going to trap that athlete. It's it's doing nobody any good. Yeah, the the podcast I did with Kibway Johnson, I really enjoyed. He was one of the top United States hammer throwers in history. I think one of the one of the few guys in the U- United States, at least, who had thrown over eighty meters in the last few decades. And he, he had said, uh, I I loved his anecdotes with Doctor Bondarchuk or Bondarchuk because he his English wasn't great. Like I met Bondarchuk uh, one time at um, Jada Mayo's seminar and I could barely understand his whole presentation. I could barely understand him. I, I got more from going through his books and things like that, but I could just basically with his accent, I could just picture what it was like to, and apparently I think he mostly just said like push the hammer. And I, I like that because it's kind of push the hammer is actually kind of a, you know, it, it, uh, James Kars had the book Finite and Infinite Games. Like finite is like there is one solution. There's like one way you do this type thing. There's one, there's, there's less constraints and infinite. There's more ways you could take it. And I look at that as more of an infinite cue because I'm like, I'd be sitting there like, what the hell does he mean? Like, push the hammer? Like, yeah. I'd, I'd be like asking myself, what does he mean? And then, 
you'd have a good throw. It's like, oh, you push the hammer. Well, what does that mean? <laughs> what does that mean? And I, I think I kind of find some humor in that type of situation, but I could see that being more effective than, well, do this, 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 this throw. Okay, now do this, 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 and this. It's almost like you're you're chasing this Zen koan of this answer or something like that. So I, I like Kibway had said too, he's like, everything I tell an athlete to do in the throw kind of takes away from their potential. Like every extra thing that's in their head takes away from the absolute purity of of that throw and did you throw was it hammer did you say it was hammer that you threw or was it other was it other implements no just hammer nice i like that because it was john garish uh hammer throw as well and like i I think there's something like elastic about the hammer you know it's like there's there's more symbiosis there where there's more like because you can't i don't know i, I mean i just threw hammer to screw around <laughs> in college we, we took the hammers out of the sheds and just like chucked them when the coaches weren't around because it was fun <laughs> but just that compared to a shot put like once that thing is in motion you are like one with that thing you know like you aren't it's not like you can't control it uh, you know like i mean i don't think you really can as much a discus or some maybe shot a little more but it seems like there's so much there's just something that's different to that implement versus the other the other throws that i think draws a very unique perspective yeah, it's such a violent art. I had Kibway on the podcast too, and hearing him talk about it really makes you understand why he was such a good hammer thrower too. It's like, man, of course, like the way your brain your brain works and the way a hammer works. Yeah. You know, it's like it's such like a it's like dogs and humans. Like where it's like a I you see this on TikTok all the time. Where it's like humans look like their dogs. Like they almost adapt the personality of their dogs, and the dogs adapt the personality of their humans. It's like he adapted the personality of the the hammer and became like almost like one with it in the way that he talks about it. And that's the only way you can become a good hammer thrower. Like the hammer throwers are not normal people. I don't know how many hammer. Th- I've talked to a lot of good hammer throwers and none of them are normal. They're, they're all that like <laughs> weird out there chaos base. And you have to be to like really connect to what the art of hammer is. And, and I think that's with a lot of sports. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it is, it is interesting to think about the more, you know, is it chicken or the egg on some level? I think it's mostly like who you are attracts you to a certain movement practice but you also think about the effect of doing a certain movement practice and the impact it has on your your coaching and your personality a little bit, you know, like I'm sure I would I would maybe change, you know, if I went to, you know, not that my um body has not shown um a massive proficiency for powerlifting ability, <laughs> but I kind of wonder what with my how my personality might change if I went to West Side, you know, back with Louis there. If I trained at West Side for 3 years, like how would I change, you know, being in that versus doing parkour with Rafe for 3 years or doing martial arts and jujitsu for three years or you know whatever like i'm just kind of kind of curious with that too but maybe that's that's made a different discussion for a different time i do have one question uh, before we get to the lightning round have a lightning round today maybe it's just actually going back to what i'd asked you before but now with all this and kind of having been discussed but you know i asked you basically when the athletes come in the door what are you doing maybe just being more specific now like talking a little bit more like what are some specific games and setups that speak to some of these things that you're talking about and maybe you know any you could pull from anything. I leave that as an infinite question a little bit, but maybe a few select games, setups, training sessions that you've done recently that you'd just like to share more about with some of this uh, as a precursor that we've already talked about. Yeah, we can kind of talk about, let's let's maybe go on like our Mondays. So Monday is kind of like our agility type day. Uh, and that's kind of like our fun day. Like Tuesday is kind of more of a speed day. Thursday, Mondays and Thursdays are kind of like the fun, unique days and when everybody wants to come watch. Tuesday a little bit more speed and it's not traditional speed and Friday's our game day which we had today um which is more bigger games but Monday the athletes walk in and we'll do some sort of move your body so that's where the skill acquisition part comes in and this is where we'll work a little bit of gymnastic work maybe a lot of catch we'll play a lot of catch like that that's super fun for a lot of athletes like get ups off the ground stick avoids a lot a lot of dance type movements 
like where we'll, we'll stand stationary. We'll have these like PVC pipes or these dowels, and we're trying to have them move rhythmically around it. Um, but a lot of moving their bodies in this like vibrational, like rhythmic type way, this athletic way, um, rolling. I just feel like rolling is so athletic. Like athletes just feel so athletic doing it. This way in which like a lot of times the spine is just moving in a totally different way. We're, we're picking up on different scales. We're getting open. So we'll start, we'll start off with that. That's usually first 10 to 15 minutes. We'll roll through with that. And then we'll go to an agility type game. So I really like on Mondays and Thursdays. So Fridays is our game day and we, it's more of our bigger full field. Like, let's say it's it's full seven, on, more of like a seven on seven type football type game, 11 on 11 type football game, more traditional game, less new rules, more bigger fields. You're actually competing full on Monday and Thursday. I really try to focus on the individual like one on one matchups. I feel like that's so important. It's like exposing an athlete to a one on one matchup with everybody watching. It's like that pressure. You find out so much about an athlete. It doesn't matter what you're playing. Like, can you compete with somebody one on one? There's so many sports in which you can hide. And that's why like wrestling, it's like wrestling is so a lot of times in high school, like people just don't want to do wrestling because it's like the one on one pressure. Everybody is watching you. Mm. Can you win? Can you lose? And exposing athletes to that. So we'll, we'll do we'll start almost always one on one, some sort of agility game. So on Monday, it was like this med ball. They're playing catch with this med ball going back and forth. And on the go call, like we give them a go call. There's two cones to left and right of them. Whoever has the med ball in their hands, so they're tossing it back and forth. Whoever has the med ball in their hands on the go call turns into offense. Whoever has the med ball, whoever doesn't, turns into defense. So my goal with that was to work. I want to work. I was thinking in my head, work in a way of like, how can we expose them to like a lot of fast break turnover type environment? So that's kind of how I approach this is like, okay, what haven't we worked in a while? We really haven't worked a fast break type turnover environment. So I want to create that. And sometimes it works perfectly. And this one actually worked really well. Sometimes it doesn't. It's like, oh, <laughs> that wasn't really. But so this was like, Balls in the air, balls in the air. You don't know who's on offense. You don't know who's on defense. On the go call, somebody's offense, somebody's defense. Just like a turnover, just like a fast break. You got to react. You got to go. So then it was a two cone, just going back and forth. Uh, you have to grab their flags. We play a lot of flag games. You got to grab their flags and you got to score. I, I like the med ball if I want to slow down the velocity of it just a little bit. Give them something to hold on to. But um, especially on Mondays, I try not to go like super high velocities based, based off like we have a lot of rugby guys coming off weekend. Like uh, rugby is a big population of ours right now in the winter. And those guys just like, I mean, a lot of times, like being honest with your population, like those guys are drinking, they, they, they go to their matches, they play their matches, and then they do like the tradition of the sport is they drink with their opponents after. So it's like, they're going to come in pretty beat up on Monday, not from their sport. So I try to slow down to velocities, smaller fields, bigger ball, especially to start. And as they start to open up, I start to see how, like how their weekend really was. And a lot of times, so this Monday, they're actually pretty good. So then we started to expand it to, we did, we got that 1v1 exposure. We're going to stick to the same game. I'm going to add an opponent and I'm going to add. So now it's a 2v2 situation. Did the same thing and just build complexity and layers like that. And this is where we can start to ask our athletes, okay, what's a rule you want to add? That, that's a big thing that we do. Like, what's something you want to add? One that forces an athlete, if you have an athlete that doesn't really talk a lot, it forces the athlete to talk and make a rule. Or you have an athlete that's like super confident. <laughs> Having them pick a rule and have <laughs> that rule suck is really good for them because they're like, it's not that you want to destroy, you never want to destroy an athlete's comment, but you want to bring them back into like being part of the social group. So there's no like animosity towards like this super high ego guy. It's like that dude came up with the rule. It sucks. Everybody can j giggle and make fun of like the rule. He's still going to beat you. Like, so like, I can't, we're not really controlling that in a one v one situations, but he's coming up with a rule. We're doing that. And then we'll kind of just gradually expand and add rules and add complexity layers until we'll usually run it for 30 to 40 minutes of those agility type games continue. Basically it's till they're disinterested in the one v one. Then we'll add a rule so they're disinterested in that. And you just kind of tell, like, 
they're talking a little bit more. They're less engaged. It's kind of like a lot of times they'll figure out like a meta that kind of beats it all the time. You really got to change a rule then and just be on the fly. But a lot of that's art. Like all I written down, all I wrote down was like the drill itself. And then I kind of came up with, uh, let's add somebody here. Let's move the cones here. Let's expand the field here because they're feeling good. And that's really the art of like expanding that back and forth. And then when we're done there, we'll go and we'll have a meetup. We'll have everybody like I like doing the meetup and the, the explaining the lift after that. And that's on purpose because a lot of times if it is a competitive environment, it forces the athletes to sit in front of the board while I talk to them about the workout uh, together. So like it just gives them a moment to calm down, breathe together. And like you guys don't actually hate each other. Like we just got done playing a silly game and you guys are all working out together. So just like give them a calm down, give them a little session while they're there and they're about to go be workout partners. So just give them a break. It's almost like halftime of the workout, halftime. And then we'll go over the lift. And a lot of the lift is just like a lot of Mondays, it's upper body, but it'll be like a a lot of main typical bench press workouts and then bending of the spine, moving the body, building armor in different ways. And that's where a lot of the movement based stuff that we're doing comes into play. So like a lot of times, like the armor building for the shoulders will be like wheelbarrows or bear mm. crawls or like rolls in the plyo push-ups. So it's like you have the momentum of a roll and you got to stop yourself in a plyo push-up and work on soft tissues in the hands. Things along those lines. So it's like we keep enough traditional in to like track and move the athlete and again use the drug of like the the metrics of lift and giving the athletes that love the strength work as well as exposing the athletes to a bunch of different movement options and soft tissue work in a lot of our untraditional and quotations more gymnastic based movements a lot of body weight movements a lot of like controlling your body through these types of movements and then we kind of just finish out usually we finish off with an iso and then then they're kind of done and that's kind of kind of the setup of like a traditional monday thursday yeah, I, I love the weekly flow of that, man. I'm sure we could talk about that, you know, like that could be its whole show, but it's a great way to cap off like a lot of what we've talked about this whole podcast just in that weekly format form. It's always good to get into the nuts and bolts of it. So, uh, hey, let's close out with the lightning round. I got some, uh, hopefully this is a pretty elite lightning round here. So <laughs> I'm, I'm excited to get this going for you. So first one, all right, if you could only pick five tools for the, the movement, like the movement, the games, the agility, that, that kind of part of the training session, uh, the five most elite tools or, or three, if we want to make it a little bit simpler, most elite tools in getting athletes uh, fully warmed up, doing games, perception, agility, and that type of work. I'm going to pick gymnastic mats. I think those are the number one that are missing in almost every gym. Like just having a gymnastic mat and having a place for an athlete to jump onto and roll and do that stuff like opens up so many avenues giving an athlete something high to jump over much different than a jump mat. We have a jump mat. We do that, but giving an athlete like a high hurdle, something that yes. actually push and do parkour over is game changing for if you want an athlete, they jump higher, like give them something high to jump over and they're going to do it for hours on end. I love a battle rope. And this, I say this strictly because almost every gym has a battle rope somewhere sitting in the corner and that's not being used. And like, it's like the glory days of CrossFit. Like you can bring that <laughs> battle rope. It's begging to be used. You can use it again. We use that a lot for like walking on, walking on crawling on just it's a really good warm-up tool for athletes that are beat up the day before uh, it's just a little bit of a slower uh, warm-up tool so we'll use the rope there and then just like space and obstacles like giving giving an athlete like just space to move and having obstacles to jump over roll over and that can be anything like we use anything for that like we use a bunch of different balls and a bunch of like whatever we can find like it's almost better to not have it set for what your obstacles are it's like I grab four different pieces of equipment and I got to come up with a warm up with that. And we do that all the time. Like the first five minutes is we got this soccer net, we got this box, we got this ball and we got a wall. 
okay, like create something off of that. And that's ex- absolutely where the best warmups come in, but where they're playing some weird tennis game off the wall with the box and the soccer net, uh, or they're just jumping and crawling and rolling over stuff. But literally like playground type material as much playground type mm. material. I go to, I go to thrift stores all the time and I go to the dollars, like this, like weird, like sports section in these <laughs> thrift stores. And I look for something cool that I can grab. I'll grab the cool thing and then I like force myself to come up with a warm up off of that. And that's where a lot of the best warm ups come from. Oh, I love that. I love, yeah, that is awesome. Like going, going to the store. Hey, I got this new piece of equipment from the store. Let's make a warm up off of that. It's that I just think that so speaks to the, you know, versus like, hey, I got this really nice equipment and we're going to do this, this routine on it as opposed to, hey, here's the playground. There's this thing on the playground. Let's find how to have the most fun with this. It's almost like, I don't want to get off on a tangent, but it brings you back to like, you know, Jackass, the series was really popular in the 2000s and almost the best episodes are when they found like this random little ramp and just did, they found fun ways to do flips or stupid stuff off of one little random ramp. It wasn't even like a big production, you know, so a little bit of a tangent. I also, I do love like hurdles, like something to jump over. The eliteness of something to jump over, like a little hurdle is so much better than jumping up to a box that costs way more. You know, you could spend... $500 $500 on the plyo boxes to jump up, or you could spend, you know, whatever the, the hurdles are like a hundred bucks for four of them. It's, a, and it's amazing. It's not even close so much cooler just to jump over a hurdle than an athletic. It feels then sometimes if I jump up to a box, it almost just feels like I became less good of an athlete for whatever reason. I don't know why. I don't know why I have that feeling, but jumping over something is, is so much better. So I completely agree with, um, with that. that good list there as well. So we, uh, well, with the, with the, sorry, I had a little bit of lag there, but the, uh, the boxes or the, the hurdle thing today, we, we had athletes jumping for 30 to 40 minutes this morning. Like yeah. they, they, they just didn't stop. And it like every time they're pushing height or coming up with a new way, but it's like, if you want to get athletes that can jump high, you got to get them to jump a lot. And like, I couldn't stop them jumping this morning. Like, well, I wasn't telling them to do anything. I just put hurdle hops till disinterested and they were 40 <laughs> minutes into the workout before they were done with that. It would be cool, like the different the different tools to have a till disinterested for each one, you know, and like see which ones the athletes go the longest till they run. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Those hurdles, man. Oh, it's awesome. All right. Next one. What training or movement topic interests you the most right now? So like, I mean, like parkour, for example, or any sort of arena in the movement world, anything that's the most interesting to you at the moment? Yeah, I would say parkour is probably a big one just because parkour. Well, for me personally, pickleball i love the like i love the skill acquisition of pickleball and learning different shots in pickleball um but i've had a bunch of parkour guests on recently on the podcast and that's really opened up a they are the ones that open up my eyes to a lot of like they say the same thing like the best creative environments they have is they go to a spot and they have to come up with something on the spot of what they want to do and how they want to create and i just think that applies to almost everything we do in the strength conditioning world and we just we just don't see movement that way in the way that they like they quite literally see movement in a totally different way and then they, they interact with their environment around them in a totally different way and trying to get our athletes to interact with that box is not just something to jump on but maybe something to roll over or mm-hmm. jump over or like cartwheel on is and getting them into that parkour mindset is something that i've been super interested in diving into how do parkour athletes think and see the things around them the way they think and see the world around them i love that i feel like everybody in, in i guess sports performance or whatever strength conditioning whatever you want to a speed and strength, whatever you want to label the field, is to spend some time with parkour. <laughs> I or even that mindset. Like I, I had a workout the other day. 
That's a lightning rod. Sorry, I just can't like help myself with this uh, little <laughs> anecdote. But like I was uh, down at the stream. I, I filmed this actually for social media, but like I ran down the rocks, like it was like a third of a mile running down. I saw that. That was, that was pretty dope. Yeah. And like, I just, there was just a random rock. I don't even know how much it weighs. It's probably not even that heavy to be honest. I don't know, maybe like 110, 120 pounds or I, I don't really know, but like just finding different ways to lift it. Then you go run back, run back to the rock, find some different ways to lift it. One, I, I, I don't know if I posted this or I didn't because it was so weird and it probably didn't look cool, but like I did like a skater squat trying to lift like an edge of it up or something. And my calf was like, there was so much tension going through my calf to do that. It was, uh, it's uh, long story short is three days later, I was in the gym again doing a squat workout and my strength was so good. And, and it's like, and I think that's ultimately, it's like, yes, it's fun doing this stuff in nature. Yes, it's meaningful, but it also can make you stronger. Like, and, and it, it all like works together. So I think that that, parkour mindset can have ramifications for more finite stuff too and i'm sure you'll find that you're finding the same stuff with how you go about your process yeah climb climbing is a big i did we're going to butcher this lightning round here but uh, yeah, we climbing <laughs> but branching off the climbing with that it's like mobility like it, it like the, the reason i think a lot of it it's like it like allows you to do something over and over and over again without having to think of like you're picking up that rock over and over and over again and you're getting the sets and reps and works I've no and work done. I've noticed this with climbing is like it's been the best mobility work for me forever because I'm climbing on a wall and I'm doing mobility work for an hour. I'm stretching my hips in these all these different positions for an hours at a time without even thinking about it. And I, I just feel like that the the work aspect, the work that you get done during play is so underrated. And mm -hmm. it's like work because you don't I don't I don't relieve thinking oh my hips are sore. I'm, I'm like stretching in a different way. Think about it, but I watch all the videos. I'm like wow. I was in this isometric lunge position for 30 minutes, way longer than I would have be one if I was on the ground. Like I can't get that long when I'm on the ground. I don't like consciously think about getting that long in the ground and opening my hips up that way. But now I get onto these, this wall and I look at old videos to now and like how much more mobile my hips are. And I would never get that way doing a stretching routine or, or if I would, it would take me 10 years to get mm -hmm. to the point that I got a year of climbing in because of the work that's done during play. Yeah, the perception is is so huge with that. Uh, I I just think I'm, that's something I'm really getting into. All right, I don't want to I don't want to go further and keep butchering this. So okay, next one, Austin, for you. What does the term fast mean to you when you train your athletes? Can you solve the movement problem faster than the person next to you? And that's that that's what fast means to me. And if if that's just a straight line sprint, which it hardly ever is in sprint in sport, the track and field, then that's fast in that, that meaning. But for a lot of times it's like the angle and the, the the reaching the goal line can you reach the goal line faster than the person next to you mm -hmm. a lot of times that has nothing to do with straight line speed can you solve the movement problem that is facing you right now faster than the person next to you and a lot of times the slower straight line person in a team sport exercise is faster in that meaning than than the straight line speed uh, wants to tell you all right next one what do you think about the term arm care yeah, this so I've been working with a lot of baseball athletes recently, and this is something that it's such a paradox. It's so funny. It's like we'll do a ton of arm care. We'll like we'll do these plyometric push-ups, these these drop catch pull-ups, a bunch of climbing, a bunch of like shoulder rotations, like maybe it's a crawl, a roll, things that are just requiring a lot of force to go through the shoulders in so many different ways. And then they'll finish that and then they need to go do their arm care with this band that is like <laughs> four pounds of resistance for 10 reps and nobody like really cares, but they're so stuck in like this, this thought process of if I don't do this, I'm going to get mm -hmm. hurt. So it's like, it's a it's super crazy paradox of like, we're totally just missing everything. Like we're, we're just not watching what's in front of us at all. 
and just seeing what's in front of us at all. And it's kind of it's like arm care is one of the most again, if you want to talk about splitting hairs or one of the most butchered things in our industry, that is absolutely one of them. And it's something that's like we're almost willfully blind to. It's like the athlete's shoulders, like the athlete's shoulders warmed up. The athlete mm-hmm. knows that the coach knows. I mean, there's no way you don't know that after what you just watched. But it's like we still have to do this. Why? Because uh, it because is never a good answer. I told you so is never a good answer. And that's what a lot of arm care is right now. All right. Last one here, Austin. What is either your favorite or the gnarliest slash sketchiest isometric hold that you or your athletes will do? Oh, I really like a lot. It's like this hanging back extension ISO that we've been doing. So you you put the barbell, you put your feet on a bench, you put the barbell above the bench, and you're like this backwards C. Um, and you hang there. Um, that one for like, I don't know how, if you want to talk about like frontline fascial lines, or you want to talk about like just building a, a T spine and uh, lumbar spine that can go into that extension mode. That and just having the athlete hang, or you want to talk about the hang position there that's building the hands and the hips a lot of times. But it really exposes like seventeen different things on an athlete, and every athlete will be different. If it is just their hands, then their grip's going to give out. But for most people, it's like they can expand the rib cage when they're in compression position. And a lot of times it's a good precursor to like a full back bridge on the ground. Cause when athletes get into this, like it's really hard for athletes that don't have really good shoulder mobility or T-spine mobility to get into a back bridge on the ground and then focus on the rib cage breathing and the rib cage moving at all in that position. So this is a really good one where it's like almost like a free floating back extension position and they can hang from this position, breathe and move that rib cage side to side there. And one, having them, have that ability to understand that position in space, but having them open up that position and they just like feel like can breathe again, which is super cool. Like a lot of times the back pain will go away when they, when the rib cage moves side to side. And we we've noticed a lot of things, but I, I, I just like it because I really like try to keep things as specific as possible or as general as possible and like work as many pieces as possible. And the specific will get exposed when you do that. So I can just have them hang, uh, which, which is a good part, but then it's just focusing on the hands. But if I can do this and have them focus on a bunch of things, I really find out what their weakness is and we can kind of build off of that and make it they make their program. So if it is their hands then I'm going to have them hang more, but if it's their like T-spine, then I can have them do more T-spine and the, the general position will allow me to focus their specific rather than just blindly. This is what I feel like a lot of programs do. They just blindly spe- like put specific exercises in their programs because like they think they need it. Like a lot of times, a lot of athletes don't need a couch stretch. It's like mm-hmm. it's something else going on. But a couch stretch is so universally known that everybody just gets applied. And if you just focus on the general, it gets exposed what the athlete actually needs. Got it. Well, sounds good. That's a good good question to close it out. And you'll have to send me the um, video for that. I'll put it in the show notes as well. So I'll have, to try, I'll have to try it myself. So, well, hey, great stuff, Austin. Man, we had a lot of uh, information-dense show today. Great talking to you. Great catching up again. And yeah, thanks for coming on, man. It was really great uh, talking to you again. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. Appreciate you being here and we'll see you all next week.